You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I discuss domestic and foreign production of goods used for outdoor recreation. We describe where some of our goods come from, why production occurs where it does, and what value propositions could bring production to the USA. Let's get into it. You mentioned in our last episode being the hunter that doesn't have the tag for the big game animal. Yeah. I just returned from a hunt that was exactly that. I had a buddy that had an elk tag, and I was along for the hang. And I was only there for the first three days of the nine-day tag. Um, And so he's still out there. Still trying to find his elk. Um, Where, we it, were you in Colorado or New Mexico? Yeah, yeah. We were out near Salida, um, oh. kind of between Salida and BV, um, near the the collegiate peaks, if you know the area. Yeah. Uh, so it was beautiful. Um, it, was, it was great weather during the day. It was 5, 10 below at night, which gets pretty, like it, it you get cold. There's nothing, zero degree bags. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, man. It's cold, but it's always fun to get out. And uh, yeah, we were talking about the economic contributions of some of these activities that require a lot of gear. And I'll tell you, hunting, and and at that point, you know, like it's really just camping for me because I don't, I've just got my sleeping gear and my hiking gear and all that stuff. So it's really just kind of camping. But um, yeah, when you're talking about surviving in in cold cold weather in the mountains uh it takes a lot of stuff to to keep you upright no doubt and i mean even here usually there there's a day or two of of pretty cold raw nasty weather during the two week just just the firearm season for whitetail mm-hmm. here but yeah it's it, it not not to mention you know i don't know if you're gonna if you're gonna hunt elk and you really mm-hmm. expect you really expect a bag one You've got to take somebody with you. You can't do that. Can't, how oh, yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. How are you going to get not, that out? <laughs> um, a lot of these spaces aren't too far from the road, um, but still, it's just good to have someone with you. Uh, and even if you're just camping in the backcountry, even if there's not a, a you know 500-pound animal that has to be carted out of there, um, <laughs> it's just it's it's good practice to take a, a friend with you so that everyone can make sure everyone's okay. Yeah, Stuff I happens think- in the backcountry. It's It's dangerous. No doubt. I think I think the um, the buddy system is a good system to have. And yeah. whenever you're in the honestly, just whenever, just wherever. I'm just going to stop also, qualifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of telling my wife before I, I roll out on a bike ride or before I go on a hunt like that or whatever. I'm like, it, it, I'll either text her or I'll like put it on the whiteboard on the fridge. I'm going here. I should be back by this time. This is my exact location, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that information has never been needed. She's never had to call not Parks yet. and Wildlife or anyone. But yeah, not yet. It's, it's a fine backup plan just in case. I'll tell you what I do because I do something slightly different. I share my location on a 24-7 basis with my three most trusted friends. Hmm. So that cool. I- anytime, yeah. 
Like if they Easy. can't, if, if somebody doesn't, if somebody can't find me, you know, and they see my dot in the middle of the woods and it doesn't move for about 10 hours, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that uh, my, my, yeah. my hours of misery crawling around with my lighter, oh, and my yeah. knife, because my ankle's broken, will will soon be over. But yeah. that, I mean, every, I think <laughs> <laughs> over because I lived through it, not because yeah, yeah, the yeah. other, well, one way or another, it's going to end. Right. But yeah. Yeah, this is this is I've got a whole episode that I want to do on something that that aviation does called the ASRS, it's the Aviation Safety Reporting System. It's an independent it's an independent system run by NASA. One person oh, wow. at NASA. Where if you if if something happens, if you see something unsafe and and you, you know, you can do it as a pilot, a co-pilot, flight attendant, whatever. But if you see a safety issue, you report it on the ASRS and two things happen. Number 1, the FAA cannot, by law, use your your whatever you reported on the ASRS for the benefit of other pilots and other people in aviation against you, right? Hmm. So it's it's a little bit of a get out of jail free card. But the cool thing is, you can look at it sort of airport by airport by airport, and you can see what safety issues <laughs> are exist at that airport just by looking at the what other pilots have said on the ASRS. Oh, I was I was thinking that this would be an amazing model for a system in the back. Country, a, yeah. uh, a democratic safety reporting system for the backcountry. Hmm. Think about it. I want to do a whole, whole I want to talk about that more later. It. The teaser yeah. for everybody out there, because today we're talking about whether or not people will pay more for um, goods that are made in the U.S. or made more sustainably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We started talking about hunting and hunting's one of those industries and, and camping, too, I think maybe fits in there. Um, an industry where we see more domestic production than in a lot of other outdoor rec industries. And the question that I want us to explore today is why aren't there more companies producing outdoor rec equipment here in the U.S.? So I'll pose yeah. that question to you, Kelly. I think you know there there are a lot of different reasons. Cost being the the number one reason. That's number one. Yeah. Yeah, always. And you know it's hard to compete when your costs are high. Um, the great thing about being in the market that you're selling into most often, because keep in mind, I mean, we're four percent of the world's population, maybe less. By the way, we hit eight billion this week according to population projections. Um, so we could, but we consume twenty five percent of all the goods that on the planet that are produced on the planet. So I mean, it's it's, it's it would be good to be in the U.S. market, especially if your supply chain becomes unreliable, which we've seen pretty acutely over the past two years. Yeah. Um, uh, additional problems include some of your sourcing might be clustered somewhere else. For instance, in apparel, you know, you, yes, you can manufacture here. It's it's easier to manufacture in, in Asia where most of the apparel manufacturing goes on because all of your sources, your material sourcing, your buttons, all the things that you need to produce the end product are, are in a one place where they're easily sourced and easily transported and cheaply transported. Mm. So when you move, when you move your manufacturing base, you know, you've got to, you've got to calculate all of those costs in and, and measure that against the, the advantages you have of being an agile, um, an agile producer in a volatile market. An agile producer in a volatile market. I like that. And, and the other thing I think you said that I wanted to circle back on was that there are markets, there are hubs of activity that have already achieved this economies of scale, which make it cost effective to produce, like you said, apparel in Asia, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. 
it, it's hard to create, it's hard to recreate that sort of economies of scale and recreate a hub of activity like that from the ground up in a new place. Yes. And, if, and even so, I mean, there are former, there are places in the U.S. that were formerly hubs and centers of textile and especially, and, and furniture and a lot of different, mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of different um, types of goods. And there are still organizations that help if, if you're interested in producing, especially I'm, I'm thinking specifically right now of hosiery because their association, you think, oh, well, socks, right? Pretty much, but you know, everybody's got two feet, man. <laughs> That's eight billion times two. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's it's there. There are organizations, including like the Hosiery Association. We've talked about the Manufacturing Extension Project or a partnership before that yeah. that have centers that that really do everything they can to support small manufacturers at the community level. Right. So it's not a, this is we're not saying that this is impossible to do or it's impossible to source. It's just more difficult and probably a bit more costly. If you can factor that in to the price of, of your product and still have a healthy margin, then mm-hmm. you've got a you've got a pretty serious decision to make. Yeah. If you can factor it in, you've got a pretty serious decision to make. If you can't, I think it, it it's tough. Um, I mean, you never it, it's, the, it's it's hard to say you're going to you're going to succeed in business because you've got a good heart. I mean, this is this is capitalism. <laughs> I, mean, I, I want people to have I want Americans to have all the good jobs, too. I mean, I, I want everybody to be able to just live and, and explore their consciousness and do all of the things that you can do in the outdoors, you know, when you have that kind of time. But I understand business. You know, I, I'm not sure it would be a tough decision to make. And yeah. you could, you, if you could make it, you know, based on, on an argument that wasn't, that wasn't financial, but you know, that's, that's, that's rare. Let's put it that I, way. Yeah, I, I think another issue that makes this decision difficult, the decision being, do I produce elsewhere or do I produce domestically, is that a lot of times from the research that I've seen asking consumers about their willingness to purchase a product made in the U.S. versus made elsewhere, if there's like a bit of a price difference, we would we would expect a domestically produced product to be more expensive. Customers are typically way more optimistic about their willingness to, to, to spend more for a domestic product. And then when they get to that marketplace, you see that that doesn't realize they're they're purchasing that imported product because it is cheaper. Uh, but we 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 and I'm saying we because I'm a consumer too feel this sort of um, duty to respond to a survey that we might prioritize made in the USA with a little flag sticker on it because we want to support our countrymen and their jobs. But if, you know, when it comes to the marketplace, we're going to save some money because we have households that we have to maintain ourselves. And um, that, that's not to say that's everyone. I know that's a, a broad generalization. I don't want to pay, paint with too broad a brush here, but um, it it's um, it's tough to get a read on what the actual market opportunity is if there's so many conflating factors in a question trying to understand consumers' willingness to pay for domestically produced goods. Yeah, we used to call this the confluence of externalities. <laughs> yeah. The confluence of exogenous variables. Well, I've got, I actually have data. All right, check this out because I, I work might. I work with civic science. Um, mm-hmm. I do have data and we're working on a response base of about, it's like, this is about 3,000 Americans that are answering the question, if a brand if a brand touts a sustainability angle, does that make you more or less likely to try it over a fast fashion brand? I mean, it's a pretty mm. specific thing, but what, what it's it's almost a max diff, like would you be more yeah. than least, right? So um just just out of curiosity, I want you I, I want you to just guess on the percentage and it's gonna be more so the the answer choices were more likely, less likely, makes no difference. And 
I am not interested in sustainable fashion. So mm. of 100% of these roughly 3,250 respondents, what percentage said that they were more likely to try a brand that touts sustainability over fast fashion? More likely. More likely to try. 40%. 19%. Yeah, okay. That, are, that said that they'd be more likely. Yeah. Okay, less likely. Less likely. Yeah, let's see. Let's see what your cynic, the the cynic Less devil likely. on this shoulder has to say. Yeah, I'm, yeah, well, it's sort of like you know they're Patagonia haters, right? I guess so. It's ten percent. Ten percent. Ten percent. All right. Ma- Seventy. All right. Don't care. Two categories left. Makes no difference, and I'm just not interested in sustainable fashion. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Makes no difference to them. They just don't mm. give a shit. It's got to be sixty percent. Forty-two percent. What? Okay. So the remaining 30. That's right. 29% said that they are Mm. just not interested. Just not interested. Yeah. I wonder wonder how that might relate to products made in the USA. Because it's a a similar argument. Like we, we know that one of these options is probably better for us as a country, maybe as a, um, as a people or something. But when it comes down to it, am I actually going to act differently based on that? Or is it, is it nice to think about maybe in the abstract? Yeah, there's and there's a ton of research on the Made in America campaign because it's been going on forever. Yeah. And we, you know, we've 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 been watching the trends of our imports increasing and domestic production decreasing over all that time. So the the answer, you know, regarding the aggregate is it makes no difference at all. Like the, the, yeah. the campaign, the Made in America campaign is is could could actually be categorized as a failure simply because they've failed to to affect the trend and the trend is going the wrong way. But and I think you're right. I think that Americans, you know, they they want to do the right thing, but when it comes down to their wallet, you know, we've been trained as rational consumers our whole lives with sort of. I mean sort of, of. we we love a marketing campaign. But you know it <laughs> And I think that at the at their most rational, you know, if somebody goes into a Marshalls and they want to pay eight dollars for a pack of three T-shirts that were made in Indonesia versus buying one, really, it's you know, maybe it's a higher quality T-shirt, but it costs thirty five dollars and it was made by your neighbor in the U.S. I mean, that's yeah. that's it's tough to ask somebody to make that decision. Yeah. Now I will say we do see in in bike some companies that are selling that that thirty five dollar t shirt in that example, and there are plenty of groups that are doing really cool work here in the U S. But it's almost like a different product when you when you compare like the customers who are buying a uh, a premium product that's made domestically. Compare that to the customer who's purchasing a product that's imported in, at a very different price level. Yeah, um, I mean, if if you're competing on price and you're competing, then then you're probably looking at it at some pretty specific customer segments. If you're yeah, if you're looking at segments that are higher income, higher wealth, um, have more disposable income, bottom line, and and can afford to actually vote with their dollars or or make moral decisions with their with their money. I think that we're talking about a pretty specific segment, and I don't think it's trivial. I think it's a really mm. important. It's a it's a, and a lucrative segment at that. I mean, yeah. we're talking about really we're talking about a good forty percent of the the upper half of the middle class in America is is probably a good segment to to target, especially if you start framing sustainability and made in the USA as issues that affect their children. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
Is it, you know, you want a healthy economy for your children. You want a healthy environment for your children. Are you willing to spend that extra $30 because you think that that by doing that, you're helping to, to solidify the future of your children? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'm suggesting that marketing campaigns, you know, think about that specific segment. Think about what motivates them to spend more money on, on, on product or to make that decision because, you know, they, they specifically want to do something, maybe not altruistic completely because, mm-hmm. you know, the Made in America label by, through its marketing campaign does tend to imply higher quality. It yeah. tends to imply, I'm not sure that's real. And, and that'll be something that that customers will have to judge product by product. But, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see if Gen Z, who seems to be um, a little bit more informed and and more likely to be activists um, mm-hmm. in the sense that they're willing to take action. And I'm just going to refer back to the midterms because a larger percentage of Gen Z voted than any other younger generation before them. Yeah, I th- I think in terms of the segment, I think that segment is is has a variety of ages, but I think the important part of that segment right now to really hit with the messaging and to get engaged, and that's important, don't just talk at you got to engage in the conversation. I'm so glad I think you said this that. this is a very perfect time to be talking about things like made in America and sustainability, especially with Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, I I, I definitely see made in America and domestic production being wrapped into a, a lot of other um, arguments. It's not a one dimensional thing, um, yeah. but where a product is made can have so many impacts on sustainability, on human rights, on all these conversations that are sort of at the forefront right now. Um, it, it's more than just, am I, am I supporting an American job or am I supporting a job in another country? Uh, there's a lot that goes into that decision. And I think yep. framing it appropriately is important. Agreed. And I, and I hope, you know, based on things that I said about being a capitalist and people making choices based <laughs> on price and make, and it being a hard decision, um, mm-hmm. has some entrepreneurs and, and company CEOs just steaming at me right now. I want them to, I mean, I'm sort of sitting at the table, like, you know. Cost more to produce in America, prove me wrong, you know, kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, you know, it, I don't think I'm just my question. My research question is how much how much can we sell altruism if it's if it's embedded in the idea of sustainability made in America and the intersection yeah. between those two and sort of the the moral issues of you want your neighbor to have a good paying job. You know, you want our economy to be robust. Um, and manufacturing does tend to to buttress the the very foundations of our economy. So yeah, you know, I'd love to see manufacturing come back. I mean, we talked last time in our in last week. If anybody was paying attention, we were talking about multipliers and macroeconomic analysis. One yeah. manufacturing job, five jobs in your community. That's six jobs for one. That's a huge deal. And so, you know, there's a very, very good reason at the at the community level to try and attract, manuf- especially manufacturing, into mm-hmm. your local community. It's amazing for your economic development. So when we think about let's let's use the term reshoring to to describe the process of bringing products that are currently made elsewhere, bringing them to American shores and producing domestically. What role does automation have in the justification of reshoring huge and, and sort of making it make sense if you will i mean automation is 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 a huge is a huge part of manufacturing in the us and, and, and I, many I'm many manufacturing yeah many manufacturing jobs have yeah. have have been um have been lost due to automation almost right. probably probably more than have been lost because of reshoring or or chasing low cost low wage manufacturing around the world even maddie agrees <laughs> <laughs> 
She's an expert in the matter. Um, she is oh. actually. She's also an expert in chewing things up and you know spitting things mm-hmm. out. So I'm not sure we should count on her for a lot of detailed economic information. But yeah, um, it's, it's um, you know, it, you've actually got to do the work if you're thinking about reshoring. You're thinking about bringing yeah. um, manufacturing back to the U.S. and you've been doing it in a low cost, low wage center. Well, yeah, you've got a lot of thinking to do, Patrick. A lot. Right. I, I bring it up because I know there are folks who, um, when we talk about supporting manufacturing jobs in the U.S., will bring up the fact that, well, it doesn't seem like those jobs are actually doing that. There, It might be human labor elsewhere, but in the U.S., if we're going to do it, it's going to have to be automated in order for it to make dollars and cents. You know, like it's it's not really supporting American jobs, says says the cynic, because it's it's being automated. So res- how can we? I, I would respectfully yeah. disagree with that because of the multiplier effect. And I, and you know, honestly, I'm not sure we want the low wage, low skill jobs back, right? We want the high wage, high skill jobs back. There you go. And it manufacturing for right. And there's a lot of manufacturing um, employment that, because of the automation, offers mm-hmm. high wage, high skill um, em- employees with amazing jobs. And yes, I would. I you know, I am. I'm a huge fan of bringing that type of manufacturing back. And but in terms of automating the low skill um, line, that's yes, that's that's going to happen. And and no, they it, twenty people won't make minimum wage because of that. But one person who knows how to how to how to manage that line is going to make a good living. And that's one person yeah, that yeah. wouldn't make a good living. And five more people in the community because of that one person that won't have jobs. Simply because you said it was too expensive and automation kills all the jobs anyway. There you go. I love it. Uh, Maybe we can spend a second talking about where our products are currently made. Um, Do you think we could like generally summarize where outdoor rec products are made? Generally. I mean, it depends on the product, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you're, you've got a smaller category. <laughs> I've got a smaller category. Bags. I mean, I've got to, I got to cover your category too. Like, holy shit. But yeah, in, in terms of, in terms of apparel, especially, I mean, we're talking about Asia, we're talking about China, Vietnam, Indonesia, et cetera. And, the, and they're, you know, they're, they're really good reasons to manufacture in those places. They've got the infrastructure to manufacture those things this, that, you know, your sourcing is, is clustered near those manufacturing centers. Many of the, many of the, manufacturing centers there actually make several different types, several, several brands of apparel. I mean, they know what they're doing. The, the level of skill in the workforce there is, is relatively high considering what, you know, what they're, what they're making and it's, and wages are low and environmental, you know, there are fewer environmental restrictions. So, mm-hmm. you know, your manufacturing is less costly simply because you don't have a lot of regulation to deal with, whether that's, that's good or bad. I'm, I'm just, I'm not judging that right now, by the way, this, I'm just yeah, not, yeah. I'm not considering those issues in the equation right now. But, you know, at what point do we say there that human costs should be included in that equation somehow? And if and if we did talk, start to talk about human costs and environmental costs in those equations, would we make different decisions? Yeah, I think that's a really good point that I was hoping we could work our way towards is sort of how the price that we pay at the register might not reflect the total cost that um, that, that production is associated with. And, and that total cost being things like the environmental factors that that we're deteriorating the environment maybe by um, by producing this in a certain area or um, the externalities of risk and that we would really want to pay more to cover the risk for supply chain issues because we placed all the risk elsewhere. We end up paying more inherently. It's just not at the, at the register. I don't know if I made any sense. I, I, no, I um, get it. Well, the way I'm thinking of it in, in the same way you think about in, integrating the cost of, of uh, the IP of a product in the product, yeah, at the, yeah. you know, to the, to the end customer. And, but no, I don't think that 
I don't think we're including those costs in the in the final price of the product. And I mean, that indicates that the price is too low. That's well, that's and- that's a problem. That's a that's right. a problem. And eventually, you know, if if somebody thinks, oh, well, that's happening in China. So why should I give a shit about that? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to throw the Gaia theory at them right now, but eventually all of that shit comes back to haunt you. There's there's karma is a real thing and I could operationalize it if if somebody if somebody wants me to. But yeah, you know, what hurts what hurts one hurts all in the end. Yeah. And and there's a price to pay. And we're all gonna end up paying that price eventually. And Gen Z's paying attention because they know they're probably gonna yeah. be the first generation on the line to pay this price. I for, think for that was our a, bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, that that was an important point you made a second ago. Was that there's like un, unrealized inputs to the cost when we produce elsewhere, but maybe if we think about how we compete on price with domestic production, it starts to sort of tip the balance a little bit more towards even when we think about the externalized costs of environment, of um, human rights issues, of, of all these other factors that aren't wrapped up into the price that we typically pay for an imported product. Yeah, what's the, what's the cost of um, you know the trauma caused by child? labor operationalize that Oof. happy thanksgiving yeah yeah <laughs> goodness i um, found myself earlier today talking about doing a macroeconomic or a macro analysis of social impact mm, so, mm-hmm. yeah, i'm just going to throw that out there since i was thinking about it you know somebody's mind is being blown right now <laughs> how would it. you how, how do you develop multipliers for that and it works in the opposite way too so when i think about kids working at a brook kiln and what we're losing from those human beings, you know, over the course of their life because of of that kind of trauma, mm-hmm. um, that's a very high cost in in my in my macro social impact analysis. That's a big yeah. big cost, and I think I think that um, more and more we're starting to look at at you know um, the the work of the economy in these terms. Too. Right? We're not. I, I think we're right. getting to a place where we're not just being positivists about the economy and saying, you know, he who makes the most money wins. I think we're moving out of that phase. But I could be wrong. You know, maybe I'm just being optimistic. That's okay. I'll be optimistic with you. I like right that. on. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to know how much more you're willing to pay for. Um, let me think of your favorite thing. All right. I'm thinking about you. Hunt. I'm thinking about you hunting. So I want to I want to do something for you. I want to make a product that you will love while you're hunting, and I want one hundred percent in the U.S. And it's not your gun, okay? It's not yeah. your gun. Yeah. It's got to be what's what's. I mean, I know what my most important gear be, beyond the firearm when I'm hunting yeah. might be. I don't, I don't know what you might think. Pack. I have a really expensive pack made here in the U.S. Kafaru, K-I-F-A-R-U, makes packs here in uh, the Denver area. Right? I think they just relocated to Wyoming. They were in Denver for a long time. They make amazing gear. I love their stuff. And they they have great customer service, too. They, you know, help you figure out exactly what you need and uh, hook you up with, like, it, it's all, like, customizable. The hardly anything you buy off the shelf there. They make great stuff. You know what my uh, problem big is? Big Agnes. You know are, big Go Agnes. Ahead. Right? Yeah, I love Big Agnes. Dude, you know what our problem is right now? Because mm. both of us are are actually willing to spend more on Made in the USA and sustainability. I am. I was thinking like, holy shit, what do I got? What do I have? What am I going to talk about? Because I'm thinking about I, like, the most important gear I have for, yeah. for hunting or skiing or just being outdoors. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, some of my best stuff is made in the U.S., yeah. I've got a like I've got a Vormi. It's that little Colorado brand. I've got 
I've got it's 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 mid layer. I've got a mid layer that I I don't leave the house without if I'm going to absorption. <laughs> right, like that's that's just that's just going to be that's like my skin that's going to be yeah. on me. Um, same thing with you know I think when I think about apparel, I mean no not not a lot of it's made in the U.S. But I do try and buy from brands that that are I know for sure mm-hmm. are thinking about sustainable practices. You know like Patagonia and Smartwool for for example. So yeah, I mean. We need to find somebody that's just a hardcore capitalist. Like, I'm not going to pay that. And and just have, we need that. Per, uh, there's got to be, there's somebody out there right now that's like, I'm not paying more for that. Yeah. Why, why can't we just manufacture things where it makes sense to manufacture? Making sense being price. Price. Yeah, just that one factor. There's a lot of factors. Like, come on, man. Why do I care about what's, what somebody in China is going through? I mean, they signed up for it. They should work in factories. When they, it's, I mean, it's, it's, is it possible that there are some people that find it hard to be empathetic to a person that they've never met that's around on the other side of the globe, just trying to live their life and do a job and make some stuff? Yeah. And is put in a situation where they're not getting paid very much. And, you know, they're probably polluting them. Maybe their, their, their manufacturing processes aren't as sustainable. The other thing that's really important to me when I'm hunting, and it is made in America, is um, my Danner boots. Right. Uh, yeah, they have. They're the only boots that have kept my feet warm consistently, and I have like really bad circulation in my feet. So like snowboarding, my feet always just go to sleep because they just get cold and they're numb, and it just sucks. But yeah, I agreed. got some like crazy nice Danner boots that are like three or four hundred dollars that have uh, like Gore-Tex insulation and all kinds of like and it's not this big puffy thing. Yeah, they're they're great. I don't know. Let me let me ask you something. Shoot. Did you pay more for those boots for the quality or for the argument that sustainability and social responsibility are awesome and made in America is awesome. Or did you just like, you know, everybody knows Dan. A hundred percent quality. Yeah. That was it. There's a, there's kind of a, there's a metaphorical lesson in that. It's not mm. so subtle. Like, right. It's um, and when I said there's, there is a quality, there is, a, there is a expectation of higher quality yeah. in made in America. And I think Dan or boot is a good reason why, I mean, holy crap, those are great boots. Yeah. I love them. Yeah, maybe maybe that can lead us into how we think of the reshoring process and um, and what it would mean to bring production to the U.S. And it would mean supporting U.S. jobs. And like you said, it's not just the direct impact of those jobs going back, but it's how dollars circulating through an economy is supported by American jobs. It also means mitigating risk. And we're um, we're cutting out a lot of risk if we bring our production here. We don't have to consider geopolitical events in other countries maybe affecting our supply chains. When it's all sort of in-house, we have less risk overall. Yeah, you probably, um, you know, if you're if you're subject to tariff right now, as many in outdoor are, oh, a tariff yeah, can run yeah. 30%. So when you're making that, when you're trying to make that decision, that's a that's a big factor to calculate. That, Kelly. you know, you're you're supporting yourself and and protecting yourself from the risk of of tax and tariff or unexpected who, tax and tariff tell me who pays that tariff oh god in in snow sports no no, no 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 hang on hang on oh, the, in, of course consumer, no. is it? of course the consumer pays for that <laughs> the consumer pays for everything that's i mean yeah. that's yeah you know yeah. oh god i yeah sorry i didn't mean to take us back to you know two year mind two years ago mindset of no mm-hmm. this is how the economy actually right you're, you're also mitigating from you know your risk of supply chain volatility. that's it um <laughs> and and all those factors yeah competing on price like we said earlier competing just on price alone is tough but if we think about how all of these other factors affect the um, 
the customer's willingness to pay for that product, I think it ends up being a very different conversation. I think it does. And if and if you can do it um, at the same time, you keep your prices reasonably low. Yeah. Uh, I think that the marketing message itself, and especially if you target that segment we were talking about, you know, that that could cover any of the any of the cost increases that you might have without having to raise your price um, extensively. And and then you then you definitely have a competitive advantage because you've got that perception of quality and you've got that segment that actually cares about sustainability. And like you and me, it's willing to pay more if we think that it's, yeah. you know, if it's something that was produced responsibly and won't and won't have those social costs and and environmental costs that I was talking about. Yeah, I mean they're big advantages. And if if you know if you can manage your sourcing pretty well so that you know you can be assured that you're going to get the materials and the components that you need to make your end product, I think there's there's some pretty significant advantages of of producing in your market. Plus you're you're closer to your your end consumer. So if there are trends that are changing, you know, then you then you're on top of them. You can be on the front of that curve. And being on the front of the trend can be very, very valuable. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.